Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody back to another episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. How is everybody doing today? I'll tell you what, everyone, we have a phenomenal guest on the show. Now, the whole reason why I decided to start this podcast is because, of course, I'm an animal lover. I like to talk to people about animals, and I love exploring different careers working with animals. And a lot of the people I talk to have dream jobs. That's kind of like my whole motivation when I'm booking podcast guests. I look around and think, wow, what job would I want? Or wow, what job would millions of people who love animals and you know wildlife in general what job would they want what you know career would they want to learn more about and i'll tell you what this guy right here definitely fits the criteria on today's show we have dr nicholas pilfold he is a large carnivore scientist at the san diego zoo and san diego zoo global so he's not working at the zoo per se he's actually working around the world studying large cats and polar bears and i mean first of all he had me at polar bears this guy is just phenomenal and i've been wanting to have him on the show for so long matter of fact him and his team were the first researchers to scientifically document black leopards in africa in almost a hundred years and i know you probably saw the the article in the national geographic it made worldwide headlines i had to talk to him about that but i also had to talk to him just about how he was able to land this dream job and what it was like and i'll tell you what i'm looking at his instagram handle right now his instagram handle is life of a biologist you have to follow him on instagram i'll include the link in the show notes but i'm just like scrolling down this guy has his hands basically on top of a polar bear paw, which is like the size of a dinner plate. I mean, he's doing research on all these incredible animals. I just, yeah, dream job. I had a million questions for him, so I know you will definitely enjoy this. And I know for all of you out there, you know, I know animal careers can be completely competitive. Um, You know, I've, trust me, I know. I'm, you know, I work with animals. I understand it's competitive and I'm also in TV. So it's like a double whammy for me. I understand there's a lot of competitive careers, but I'll tell you what, the sky is the limit. Before we get to the episode with Dr. Nick Pilfold, please make sure if you haven't already to hit subscribe to the show, leave a rating. It seriously helps me out. You can also find out more information and more kind of content regarding this podcast if you follow my Instagram handles at Corbin Maxi and Twitter and Facebook. But with that said, oh, you guys are going to enjoy this. Here we go. Let's talk about some leopards and let's talk about some polar bears with Dr. Nick Pilfold, the large carnivore scientist from the San Diego Zoo. Nick. I am so excited to have you on the show. You have no idea. First of all, I found out about you through Instagram and I, Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. It just blew me away. Your feed full of leopards and polar bears. And I'm like, I have to have this guy on the show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun job for sure. Yeah. So you are a large carnivore scientist for the San Diego zoo global. I mean, that's a dream job for a lot of people. I mean, take me back. <laughs> like, how did you end up in this position? Take me back to your childhood and the steps of getting this dream job. Yeah, I, I mean, I think for everybody, it's it's never a straightforward path. You know, maybe from the outside, it looks like it is, but it's always a bit of a journey. 
Um, and certainly it does go back to my childhood. I grew up in uh, a rural place in Canada. I'm out here on the West Coast is, is my childhood home near Vancouver, British Columbia. And my parents have some small acreage. And when I was a kid, we had horses and chickens and dogs. And uh, we were very close to wilderness. So we always saw animals around us. We saw black bear and uh, deer and coyote. And even sometimes we'd see cougar and even lynx. So there was this immediate contact with wilderness, and I spent a lot of my time as a child running around outside. But it wasn't until actually much later that I got back into doing uh, large carnivore work. Much later. Okay, so when you grew up, did you know that you wanted to work with animals? No, not immediately. You know, I think, uh, I think the thing that's always stuck with me is that I wanted to be a scientist. Uh, I was always interested in science from the very beginning. Um, you know, even doing the science fair projects at school uh, with my dad. Uh, that was really cool. And uh, when I went and started university, I actually started in physics and astronomy because at the time I was very interested in astrophysics. Yeah, so I did two years of an astrophysics degree. But coming towards the end of that second year, it wasn't really holding me the way I thought it would. My attention was waning. Um, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And it just so happened that I had to take a biology course uh, as part of my degree. And in that biology course, there was a section on ecology. And that really grabbed me. It grabbed my attention. And from there, it just sort of it unwound. And I, I switched my degree to do ecology and biology. And so I had to kind of take a couple steps sideways to sort of move forward again. And I spent an extra year at university doing that. But uh, it turned out to be the right place for me. Oh wow, we have like opposite stories. So when I was at when I was at the university, I was so excited because I went for biology. I knew I wanted to work with animals, and I had to take physics. Yeah. And Nick, I'm telling you, physics and me, we just we just don't work out. So I was, <laughs> I was <laughs> it so happened. Yeah. This is a true story. It so happened that physics were not required for my year or whatever my catalog year. So I was able to escape without having to endure the physics. Although I still had to do all the chemistry and you know all the you know all that type of fun stuff that came right. up later at night but wow yeah so astrophysicists so i mean but i mean so you okay so you go to to the university you know yeah. and you get your degree but how do you end up working for the san diego zoo i mean there were probably several steps right yeah yeah so uh, after i finished my degree because it took me a lot of time doing that switch from astrophysics to biology i was i was sort of finished with the university education at that point i wanted to go and work and so what I did from there is I actually went up uh, to become a consultant. And I was an environmental consultant here locally in British Columbia for about three years. Um, but that job wasn't really holding me. You know, it wasn't holding my interest in the same way that I felt when I was doing astrophysics. I just wasn't holding my interest. I wanted to do something that was more of a passion for me. So that's the point where actually I started my career uh, trajectory, which ended up at San Diego Zoo Global and being a large carnivore scientist is um, I kind of sold all my stuff, packed up my things, and I moved to Africa to get a bit of experience working with large carnivores before I decided that this is indeed what I wanted to do. Wow. Okay, wait, wait. Have you ever have been to Africa before, before you dropped everything and sold everything? No, this is the first time. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd done a bit of traveling. I know I'd done the Europe thing, and I'd gone to Mexico and stuff like that, but I'd never done a trip of that sort of magnitude. Wow. Okay. And so that was in 2009, correct? You packed up. That's right. Yeah. And you moved to South Africa. Yeah. What yeah. So the idea there was, was, you know, I was interested when I was doing my bachelor's degree in ecology. One of the things I was very interested about was how uh, communities of animals are structured. And one of the things that uh, becomes quite um, obvious is that large carnivores have a big role to play 
in how communities of animals are structured in the environment. And that's what drove my interest to doing large carnivores. But before moving down that career path, I really want to try to get some experience, you know, do day-to-day work, make sure that I was still interested in what I was doing six, eight months down the road living in a a small place in in Africa. So I I got myself a volunteer internship in South Africa in the the northern part in the Popo province. And the day-to-day work was tracking large carnivores in a small reserve. So one day we tracked lions, then the next day we tracked hyenas, the next day we tracked leopards, next day we tracked cheetahs, last day we tracked wild dogs, and then we take a day off and then we repeat. And that was uh, amazing. I, I was I couldn't get tired of it. I loved it. I loved every day of the work. And so from that point on, I knew that I was on the right path. Oh, my God. I'm obsessed with Africa. I, I've only been twice. I've never been to South Africa. I've been to Kenya. But I wanted to pack everything and move and do the whole thing. It just never... I yeah. Had, yeah. I mean, what? Okay, so day to day, you're tracking these large carnivores. I mean, do you have a first experience when you arrive in Africa like that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, certainly. There, there's a couple of different experiences. I think the first arrival to the reserve and to the nature, the environment in Africa was very different. So here in Canada, we certainly have a lot of wilderness, but it's spread out over a huge area. The density and diversity is not nearly the same as in Africa. Africa is such a unique place that way. So I remember the first few nights that I was there, the the surroundings felt alive. You know, you could hear the lions calling, you could hear the hyenas calling, you could hear the birds. It's just so much life, so much diversity. And that was different for me as a Canadian. I was like, this is really, really cool. Like, this is so much here. And then um, the other event that sticks out in my head was the first time that I, I got up close with lions because um, it's it's just something so special when you see wild lions. And it was a pride that had uh, three little cubs, uh, a, a couple adult females and one big adult male. And uh, it was our job just to take some focal observations of what they were doing. And, you know, the cubs were playing around the car, and we had a, a female lioness at the front of our car and a female lioness at the back of our car and a male that would walk by who was only feet away from us. And uh, it's just – it's such a visceral thing to be that close to such a magnificent animal. Wow, that's a great first lion encounter because every time I've seen lions, they've been sleeping. <laughs> yeah, that was most of the encounters from that point on was just like lion sleeping. We just got really lucky that day. We, you know, we leave slightly before dawn and we just encountered the lions really quick. So, uh, yeah, they were still very active around the vehicle and it just happened to be my first time. So, yeah, it was good. That's so cool. Now, were a lot of tourists around in this area where you were studying or is it more, you know out there it was actually a it was a private reserve that we were working on so uh it was really nice it was just mostly the the researchers the interns that were working there with the management um crew that was was there so it wasn't very many people and and a lot of animals it was really cool okay so did you have a favorite carnivore that you tracked i mean because you said you were tracking let's see lions leopards hyenas wild dogs cheetahs yeah I think I think at the time the wild dogs were my favorite, yeah, because they're they're such a, a neat animal, you know, in the sense of how they move through their environment um, and how they interact with one another, and even some of the vocalizations, you know, when they get really excited and they're on a, a fresh meal, um, they'll kind of chirp at each other. I mean, if you if you YouTube like wild dogs, it sounds uh-huh. like birds. Uh-huh. talking to each other uh-huh. that surprised me so much i'm used to hearing the the larger carnivores here they don't sound anything like that uh and yeah it was always a unique experience to find wild dogs because it was a rare event to find them um and so i always felt very lucky to have the opportunity to see them aren't they one of the world's most endangered carnivores 
Yeah, they're up there for sure. Um, and unfortunately, they suffer from a lot of different conservation threats. Uh, the project that I um, run currently in Kenya, there's a wild dog pack that lives in and around there. And um, a canine distemper virus outbreak really brought the population down. So there's a lot of different threats for them. Uh, they need large um, uh, open areas to hunt and, and mm. uh, large ranges. So having that sort of uh, unfettered access to uh, open areas to hunt prey is, is also a difficulty for them. Let's talk about them hunting prey because I, I mean, cause a lot of the cats, they don't have a very high success rate with their kills, but aren't wild dogs, I read something, they have like a 90% success rate? Yeah, I think that they're very good as, as coursing hunters, you know, they, uh, they have a, a, a social hierarchy within, within their group that allows them to tire their prey out. So once they have a target item, um, a target prey item, they can uh, use their speed and their endurance to really wear their prey down and, and become very successful at what they're, what they're going after, yeah. And did you see many hunts? Uh, you know, that's the, that's the funny part about doing large carnivore research, right? Because they have this idea going into it that it's going to be like a, a, a documentary special. Like, it's going to be just like David Attenborough kind of you're be watching these yeah. amazing moments of wildlife. That's what uh -huh. you kind of go in. And very rarely have I ever seen um, hunts myself. Uh, I've seen certainly meals of, of a lot of different large carnivores after they made the kill. Um, I do remember one time we were driving through the, uh, one of the reserves I was working on. And I saw a bunch of Impala caught right in front of our vehicle, and they were going really, really fast. And I was like, and, and all I remember thinking is, those Impala are running faster than I've ever seen Impala run before. And then when I turned and looked the other way, there was two, uh, a coalition cheetah pair, two male cheetahs that were right in front of our vehicle chasing them, right behind them, you know? And I was like, oh, well, that's why they were running so fast. And it was just, it was over like that. It was kind of, we were in a, a shrubland area, you know, there's no way to sort of follow them. And of course we actually want, you know, nature to proceed as it should. So you just kind of let them go. But that's about as close as I've ever been to like an African uh, large carnivore hunting. Yeah. yeah, I was, I almost saw a, a hunt and I say almost cause I was in Kenya, but like literally we waited for like hours, like lines of cars just waiting. And it was just, yeah, I mean, nothing just, you know, the lines kind of snuck up on the wildebeest and then they just, yeah, you know, unsuccessful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know exactly. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Okay. So I'm really jealous, Nick. I am so jealous. <laughs> okay. Look at this photo behind me. I had to take it off my wall. Did you see this beauty right here? Look okay. at this. Oh yeah. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Nick. This oh, yeah. Leopards are so beautiful. Such a beautiful animal. Okay, so... Did it, you take that photo? Now you're going to make me mad. No! <laughs> I, did not, <laughs> I did not take this photo. And Nick, I'll tell you what. I went to Africa twice, and the only animal... Oh, shoot, it just fell on me. That's great. Um, hold on one second. The only animal that I wanted... I mean, obviously, I wanted to see a bunch of animals, but the one animal I wanted to see was the leopard. And I was, like, this close, and I did not see one. And so... yeah. I've always wanted to talk to somebody about leopards on the show, and you're the guy. So let's dive into it, man. Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're an amazing animal, and they're elusive. That's that's their big thing, right? And uh, that makes them difficult to see as tourists. They're part of the Big Five in Africa. Everybody wants to see them. You usually get your first big, you know, the four of the Big Five done, but then you don't see the leopards because of 
how tricky they are to track. And, you know, you look at lions, they like to hang out in grasslands and, and big openings, and you got the pride, which makes them a little bit easier to see. Leopards are solitary. They like to live in sort of rocky or ravine environments that are, are tucked away. So you have to have a really keen eye to be able to pick them up. And actually, when it comes to their conservation, it's, it's one of the issues with them because uh, there's not actually a lot of research dedicated towards leopards when you think about the other research that goes on for lions and cheetahs and wild dogs. Uh, there's not a lot of people that are wor working on leopards, and that's one of the reasons is that they're so elusive and hard to track. Do you remember your first leopard encounter? Uh, yeah, um, my first leopard encounter would have been in South Africa, okay. uh, and as it is for leopards, it was fleeting. You know, we were driving along the road, and we saw something ahead, and you know, what is that? It kind of looks like a dog or something. You get a little bit closer, like, oh, it's a leopard, and next thing you know, it's it's across the road. Um, so certainly, the live encounters of leopards have been um, few and far between for me, but uh, they're amazing when you get them because just like. I said with wild dogs, you just feel so lucky they get this opportunity. There's a saying that, you know, you don't see a leopard, but a leopard allows you to see it. And so you feel very special when you get that opportunity to, to spend a little time with them. Man, I was trying everything in Africa. I'm telling like reverse psychology, like I don't want to see a leopard, I don't want to see a leopard, <laughs> but like my neck hurt from looking up at all the trees. Man, they are so elusive, yeah. you know, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And so I, I mean, it depends on where you are in, in Africa, too, because in some places in South Africa and even the Masamara in Kenya, they become very acclimatized to having cars and habituated to having people around. So in some areas, they're, they're easier to see. In the area where we work in northern Kenya, there's not a lot of people around. There's not as much tourist traffic as in the big national parks. So the leopards are very shy there. So it's, it's a rare event when you get to see them, but always very special. Yeah, I, I was in the Maasai Mara, and every other group saw a leopard but me. <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so typical. It's, a, it's such a typical story that people will say. It's like, oh, you know, it's the one animal. It's the one animal I want to see. Yeah, so recently, I mean, you did something. One of your, I mean, because you set up camera traps, correct? That's right. Okay, so talk a little bit about that before I get on to my next question about what broke news a few months ago. Yeah, sure. So uh, that's a major way that we do a lot of our observation on leopard. Uh, because leopard in our area is so shy, it's hard to get that direct focal observation from a truck. So what we do is we set up a grid of cameras and we position those cameras in good known leopard habitat. And then from there, we can identify individuals in the population because each leopard has a unique set of rosettes on the side of its uh, body just like our fingerprint, right? Every leopard is different that way. And so when you start to catalog those leopards that are living in your environment, you can see them repeatedly show up at different cameras. And then over time, you can get a fairly good estimate for the number of leopards that live in an area. And then hopefully start to look at things like status. Are the leopards in our area, are they stable? Are they increasing, are they decreasing? And those numbers are really valuable because that's the missing information for leopards right now. Mm-hmm. And your camera trap caught something that has not been scientifically documented, right, in almost 100 years, and that was a black leopard. That's right. So we got black leopard on our cameras, and um, this was something that wasn't actually the main focal uh, project for us. What we were doing there is we were tracking the population, and we're trying to mitigate conflict between leopards and people, because often these leopards will go and get into trouble to steal a goat or, or sheep, uh, a goat or, or, you know, chickens or livestock, young cattle, stuff like that. And that's where the conflict occurs between people. 
Um, but yeah, so we heard when we were setting this project up that there were black leopards living in the area. And I found that to be very interesting. I went back into the scientific literature. And what I found was that there were some reports in Kenya, but nothing that was confirmed. So no one had published any imagery of black leopards to say for sure, yes, they exist here. But there was a lot of reports, a lot of sightings. People had said, yes, I've seen I've seen them here. Uh, so when we got a specific sighting, uh, we set up our cameras in a very intense grid. And then we got the imagery that became um, sort of viral a couple of months ago and published a paper uh, just confirming, you know, what a lot of local people already knew, which is that black leopard do exist. And, and uh, we we're very happy with that because I think that uh, the attention around that finding is really good for leopards. You know, it's, it's good for leopard conservation when people uh, know a little bit more about the species and get interested in them. I think it's great something like that going viral that in this day and age, people are still interested in wildlife. I think it's great. I think it's really great. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So how long, though, did it take you? I, okay, so I'm not a very patient person, <laughs> and I know to be, <laughs> and I know to be, you know, a scientist, and I'm a biologist myself. But like to be a wildlife researcher, you do have to have patience. How long did it take for you to actually get a photo, you know, with with your camera trap of that black leopard? Uh, so we started setting our cameras for black leopard in February of 2018, and we had our first images come back to us in that initial month. Uh, but we needed to continue to get more observations to make sure that we had high qu quality enough observations that we could pass them through the scientific peer review. So we continued to record observations for um, about three months. And some of the observations that we were looking for is that uh, at nighttime, our cameras, they shoot in infrared. And that's really important because when you look at a black leopard during the day, it just looks jet black, right? And so if you want to know that you're actually looking at a black leopard rather than another black cat because there are other other cat species that will have melanism in them uh, you want to see that rosette pattern and so we were looking for to get the imagery where the leopard will walk very close across past our cameras at nighttime so that those rosettes would all show up on the camera and that gave us a, a big piece of evidence and then the other piece of evidence that we had which was really nice by chance is that we had a non-melanistic leopard, a regular sort of golden leopard, interacting with a melanistic leopard. And so you can confirm body size, socialization that might uh, indicate parent-offspring relationships. And so those two pieces of evidence became the core pieces that we used in the publication to you know, document that this was occurring in Kenya. So this is something obviously with genetics. I mean, what do you yeah. think the evolutionary advantage would be to have a black coat? I mean, there are a couple theories, but what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think it's it's interesting where we're finding them because the, the predominant theory about being black for a leopard is that if you live in a densely shaded habitat, it would provide camouflage for you to sneak up on prey. And so if you go into Southeast Asia, that's where you get most of the black leopards living uh, in these dense tropical forests where there's lots of shade. Where we're working in central Kenya there is actually a very dry uh, shrubland savanna type habitat. There's not a lot of shade in the specific study area where we're working. So it's curious to me, these are the first observations in this particular biome of black leopards living there. And, and open up questions for why they're living there and if there are other potential um, evolutionary mechanisms for being black that we might be able to find out through these recent observations. Did you, did you see more than one individual or was it just one that you were able to catch on the trap? So initially we had two, um, but we're actually now up to five individuals in our population, which is really neat. To me, that suggests that it's not just sort of a rare one-off kind of genetic mutation that's occurred and, and an individual has it, but it's actually a trait within the population. 
Wow. That's it. I mean, yeah, did you cool. just, dude, did you just like celebrate? I mean, were you the first one that saw the photos when they came back? Were you just like looking through them and were you just like, oh my gosh? Uh, actually, so to run the project, I have a local field assistant on the ground who does all the day-to-day running of the project, makes sure the cameras are all good and collects all the images, uh, Ambrose left Hawaii. And so Ambrose was the first one to send me back the images and say, look what we found. You know, we found this black leopard on our cameras. This is great. Um, and he's you know just as excited as I. He's like, he's a local guy, you know, comes from very close to the study area where we're working. He'd always heard uh, his uh, elders in his communities tell stories about black leopard being present. So to you know have that confirmation was very exciting for him too. Wow! I mean, did you just like pop the champagne? I would be so excited. I just would be like, <laughs> let's celebrate. Yeah. We're in the bush. I mean, I that's just yeah. so cool. Such yeah, it was, it was very it was a very exciting moment for sure. Yeah. So, how long are you in Africa for these types of you know studies? Uh, so this is an it's an ongoing study. So mm-hmm. we're hoping to continue it for the long term. In terms of my personal travel, I try to go three times a year for anywhere from two to six weeks at a time. Two to six weeks at a time. Wow. Is it is it hard to get back to reality after beating the African bush, heading back to Canada and? No, you know, I, I kind of gotten used to it. I, I like it. You know, um, San Diego, when I when I go back to the zoo, it's a very nice place to come back to. Um, and San Diego is a beautiful place to work. And the zoo is a gorgeous institution. And, and I have a really nice office there. So it's a nice, relaxing sort of thing to come back to. But yeah, I kind of learned as part of my role at working at San Diego Zoo Global is that uh, you got to be um, flexible with where you're going and what you're doing. And, and uh, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, I, I work on leopard, but I also work on polar bears in Canada and Norway. I also collaborate on projects in Andean bears in Peru and, and giant pandas in China. So being flexible to different environments is just the name of the game when it comes to that type of position. Oh my gosh. Okay, so let's talk about that. Your recent Instagram post with the polar bears, just phenomenal. Can we just talk about your work with polar bears? Because there's a photo sure, of you yeah. just like touching their paws. I'm just like, yeah. oh my goodness. So please, yeah, <laughs> give me an idea. Yeah, yeah so, uh, so polar bears is actually you know, just going back a little bit. When I came back from South Africa uh, in 2009 and I wanted to become a large carnivore scientist, I wanted to do my PhD work here in Canada uh, and I wanted to work on the largest carnivore of them all, which is polar bears. And here in Canada, we have two thirds of the world's population living in our Arctic. Wow. So it was kind of a, um, it was a number of interests that, that kind of drove me to that. Not only just large carnivores, but I got to see Canada's great backyard and massive Arctic that we have and explore some of that during my PhD. So now that I'm based at San Diego Zoo Global, I continue those relationships that I built during my PhD to do the work. And that's what you were seeing on Instagram is recent field work in the spring in Hudson Bay, Canada, where we go out and we interact directly with the bears on the sea ice. And that's what leads to those kind of pictures of being up and close with the bears. Yes. And I, I heard some or learn something and read an article don't they communicate with by the scent glands underneath like their paws is that correct can we talk a little bit about that yeah yeah so that's one of the ways they communicate one of the projects that we've been working on is to try to decipher more about how they do this long distance communication because polar bears they cover a, a huge area you know like a, a single bear in a year can cover half a million square kilometers in wow. a single year that can be its range mm-hmm. um, and they're solitary animals so when they're out on the sea ice they're not close enough to communicate through vocal communications they have to communicate in other ways and when it's springtime 
the females, they come into estrus and, and come into heat for breeding and, you know, males want to be able to find those females. So what they do is they leave this trace. They have uh, sweat glands in their feet and the sweat glands leave some pheromones in the, in the ice and in the snow. And the, so they'll walk along. The females will leave that particular scent signature that will say, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I'm looking for a mate. I'm looking for a date, you know, and the males will follow that. And we'll even see uh, when we're following these tracks, you'll see that the males will actually even walk right over top of the females tracks, which is really interesting because the females are half the size of the males. Right. So for the males to walk inside of those tracks, he kind of has to take shorter steps all the way along. Now, um, so they're very keyed into trying to find uh, the available females in the spring. And that, that's what that communication is all about. Have you ever had any close calls? I have um, one of my friends travels the world. He does like, um, you know, um, wildlife photography expeditions. And he was saying like the only two animals that will try to eat you are crocodiles and polar bears. <laughs> so like, <laughs> and he, he photographs polar bears. So uh, what was that like? Have you ever had any close calls where you thought, uh, what, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, um, Polar bears are, are they're an interesting animal to work with. You know, uh, when it comes to their overall behavior, they have sort of this dual personality where um, they're, they kind of feel sort of gentle when you look at them and certain things that they do. But you know that they are the boss of the Arctic and nothing pushes them off. Right. So you have to be exceptionally careful. Sometimes the, there's a deceptive way about their behavior because they're a little bit more gentle. Uh, I'll give you a quick example in the animal world in, uh, in Alaska, bowhead whale carcasses wash ashore, uh, every year and grizzly bears and polar bears will both feed on those carcasses. Really? But when it comes to, uh, who gets access to the carcass, if there's a fight, it's usually grizzly bears that win and push the polar bears off. Um, even when polar bears are bigger than grizzlies, it's just because grizzlies are kind of, they're more aggressive. They're a little bit more nasty to deal with. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think I've had anything that is a really dangerous close call story. Uh, we're very careful in what we do in our field work. Um, we've been doing the same protocol, uh, for the last 35 years. Uh, so all the stuff that we do now has been developed over a long time. Um, when we sedate the bears, the drugs that we've been using, they've been tested, uh, over, over many years. So we're very, very good about, uh, the safety protocols in the field. And so you're basically, I mean, what are you studying? Just their habits with the females or like, can you give me more in depth of, of, of what you're doing, I guess? Sure, yeah. So every spring we're running a, a sort of a gauntlet of different things all at once. You know, we have a number of different research programs uh, collecting data all at once, and it's all kind of structured within the same daily activity. So the daily activity is we get into a helicopter in the morning, we pick up, we head out to the sea ice if the weather conditions are good. We're tracking bear tracks in the snow to try to catch up with particular uh, bears. Um, and then we use uh, tranquilization from the air using aerial darting. Bear goes to sleep. Once the bear is asleep, we go on the ground and we collect a bunch of information. So the studies that we're looking at include, uh, we put out transmitters, uh, collars and, and ear tags to track bears. So looking at migration behavior, um, sea ice dynamics and how bears react to certain habitats and sea ice change. Uh, we look at sort of health of the bears. So we're taking little bits of samples here and there, some hair and some claw, a few different things, just tiny samples off these bears, but we can get all sorts of information off of that. So the health of the bear, the contaminant load of the bear, 
uh, disease information for the bear. Um, so there's a sort of a polar bear health project that we work on as well, where we're trying to understand the health of the bears and what drives their changes over time. Uh, and then predator-prey interactions. So one of the things that we're working on this year is um, documenting what bears do at kill sites. And once they're finished feeding, what do those kills do for the rest of the species in the system? So who else comes out and feeds on those kills? Um, and how much of that do they take? And how important is that for those animals? So it's a very wide program. Um, and it's structured on doing largely the same type of work over many, many years. We've been working in that Hudson Bay area for 35 years now and tracked more than 4,000 bears over that time period. Uh, so we have a lot of information on how bears live in that area. Wow. Okay, I'm going to hit you with the hard question. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's do it, Nick. We have to do it. Okay, would you rather um, study leopards or polar bears? Oh, goodness. Polar bears. Wow. Interesting. It's hard. That's a hard choice. I mean, that's a – yeah. Okay. I mean, but if I have to choose, yeah. Let's actually up the ante. How about if you run into – <laughs> what about seeing 10 more black leopards or polar bears? What would you choose? You know, because because we've got some really great footage of black leopards already, I still have to say polar bears. No um, way! That is so cool. I you know I think I think part of it for me is like I, I love all the projects I get to do, and I'm I'm very blessed in what I get to do, and, and it's very hard to choose those types of types of things. It's kind of like, would you want to have cake or ice cream? You know, <laughs> like well, both? Can I have both? Can ice cream. Both? Um, <laughs> but you know, I feel very attached to doing polar bears because it's it's uh, it's something that is uh, attached to being a Canadian. You know, they're they're a Canadian icon of an animal. Right. They're on our two dollar coin. Um, they're very special to a lot of Canadians. So uh, getting the opportunity to work on them is a very important part of what I do. What is something about polar bears that you know that a lot of people don't know, like the average person? What is like the coolest fact? Oh, the coolest fact. Um, I mean, there's a lot of myths about polar bears. You know, I've heard a lot of things like, uh, you know, polar bears will cover their nose because it's black at the sea hole to uh, when they're hunting, you know, still hunting. They're staying in a seal hole oh. that some people say about they're this and they'll cover their nose so that they blend in more because the nose is black. That's that's total, you know, that's a total myth. Or some people said the polar bears are left-handed. There is no left or right hand. <laughs> they're, okay. they're, just, they're just bears. Um you know their coats. Uh, people think that their their coats are are, are uh, white or gold. They actually lack color whatsoever, which is really neat. So if you look at a polar bear hair, they're actually transparent. It's that they take the ambient light and reflect that through their coats, and that's why bears they take different hues and different colors at different times, and so they seem more golden at different hours a day, more white when the sun's straight over top. Yeah, there's lots of really neat things about bears. Um, you got me there, though. I mean, I I could definitely dispel a lot of myths, but I don't have a quick one on top of my head for you. Isn't and and isn't their skin jet black underneath? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So they have this sort of the jet black skin and then this white coat on, on top of it. Yeah. That just blows my mind. Just out of curiosity, and you don't have to hit me with any like crazy scientific statistics, but are they? I mean, like regarding their, I mean, like success kill rate. I mean, are they pretty successful when they are hunting for seals on the sea ice? Because I feel like that would be so hard. I mean, so hard. It is hard. It's a, it's a, a polar bears are incredibly intelligent because they're solving such a complicated problem every time they hunt a uh, seal, right? It's a three-dimensional problem where, you know, a lot of carnivores, they're dealing with a two-dimensional world in the sense that their prey can run off somewhere, but it's still on that same plane. Where seals, they go 
down a hole, right? And they got to wait for the seal to come up. Um, we estimate it's somewhere between uh, 5 and 15% of hunts are successful, depending on the time of year. Uh, the best time of the year for the bears is right about now, actually, in the spring. And that's because the seals that they hunt are having pups on the sea ice. And those pups are very naive. They don't really know what's going on. And so they're easy prey for the polar bears to get. But to get an adult seal, is, it's, a tough, it's a tough go for a polar bear. They have to hunt a lot in order to get one. Have you ever seen a hunt? I've been, no, I haven't seen one live. I've been very close to hunts that have recently happened, um, coming up on polar bears that, are, that have just killed a seal. Um, and you can see, the nice thing when you follow the tracks in the snow, you can see exactly what they were thinking or how they were sneaking up uh, on their prey. A lot of times in this time of year, the ice will start to break and open in these small leads. And we'll see the bears will walk along these leads and seals have hauled out and it's resting on the side of the lead and the bears will go in and they'll start swimming up the lead to sneak up on the seals and then and then ambush them but um that's part of the research is that we're flying around in these helicopters and you know they're not the quietest most sleek machines out there so by the time we get there the bear has already realized that we're on site so it's very hard to get kind of like that uh, focal observation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay so let's switch topics let's go to the opposite side of the world are you ready for this Sure. Okay, so giant pandas. That is a rare yeah. that is a rare obviously a rare animal. I didn't even realize you had worked with pandas until I scrolled through your Instagram feed yesterday and I just couldn't even imagine. I mean, what an experience to see them out in the wild. Yeah, and San Diego Zoo Global, this was one of the real attractions for me when I came down to become a scientist there is that they had this well-established program working on giant pandas in China um, and for many years. And so the people that I work with directly, Megan Owen and Ron Swayzgood, they've been doing giant panda research for all of their careers. And we've learned a lot through that research. Um, and so for me, it's more of a collaboration. I've come in a, and I help out on certain aspects of the program, but I don't necessarily lead the program like I would for polar bears and leopards. But it's allowed me to go to China to see uh, the conservation in action around giant pandas. And yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing what the zoo has been able to do. It's amazing what China has done in the last number of years with their uh, new nature reserves that they're building for giant pandas. And the fact that uh, between the last two national surveys for giant pandas, we've actually had an increase in the population, and that's re um, resulted in a downlisting of giant pandas, which is good. It means that the, their population is, is starting to stabilize and increase, which is what we want to see. So are they, I mean, are they pretty elusive when you're searching for them in the wild, just like a leopard? Or how is this, I mean, I just, I take me through it. I mean, I, what an experience. Yeah, um, yeah, giant pandas certainly are a different, a difficult species to track as well. They're they're very shy animals. Um, I haven't done a lot of that tracking myself, but that's me speaking to other colleagues that have. Uh, what China relies on is um, they have these national surveys that they do every ten years or so, and what they do is they go and they look for evidence of giant pandas in, in all the habitats that they know that giant pandas live in all their nature reserves. And from that, they can use it as a proxy to determine how many giant pandas are living. And it's given us a lot of information about the types of habitats that giant pandas can be found in and how they're moving and changing over time. Giant pandas are really weird bears. Would you agree? They're an interesting <laughs> carnivore. Yeah, because taxonomically they're a carnivore, but they're not really they don't behave like a carnivore and they certainly don't eat like a carnivore. Yeah. I mean, can we go a little further into that? 
Yeah, yeah, certainly. So, I mean, 99% of what uh, giant pandas eat is bamboo. And bamboo is is a tough substance to eat. Um, it's not just in, in terms of it being plant matter and high in cellulose, but the fact that it's it's hard. It's a hard material. It's a, you know if you ever pick up bamboo and just try to break it, it's, you can't. It's mm-hmm. it's very difficult to do. So that's led to some interesting adaptations for for pandas. Um, one of which is that their jaw and their bite is actually the strongest out of any of the bear species. So you might think that you know the predators of the bear species that focus on on uh, like polar bears that focus on killing seals, they would have a really strong bite, but they don't. It's the pandas that need to shear through that bamboo. And then the other thing that pandas have is they have this uh, symbiotic relationship in in their guts for uh, bacteria that can break down the cellulose so they can actually get some energy and nutrition out of it. But their lifestyle has moved towards a much more sedentary um, sort of lifestyle where they sit and eat a lot of bamboo in a day in order to get enough nutrients out of it to, to make it worthwhile. But yeah, they're, they're an interesting species for sure. Are they, I mean, because I think in pop culture, they, you know, they're just depicted as these friendly, you know, cuddly, lovable, cute animals. Are they aggressive like other bear species? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them necessarily aggressive and um, relative to some of the other bear species. Like I mentioned before, grizzly bears, they're pretty aggressive. Sloth bears are very aggressive as species. Um, but I think there's this thing with giant pandas that people think that they're totally just, you know, like you say, fuzzy and cute and they're not dangerous. And that's totally not true. I mean, they're still bears at the end of the day, uh, and they can do a lot of damage. And if they don't like you being around, um, they can certainly act in a defensive manner and, and you wouldn't want to be near a panda that's doing that for sure. All right, Nick, you just sparked my interest. You said sloth bears are really aggressive. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Did you have any encounters yeah. or stories from colleagues? Like I would never have guessed. Uh, no, I don't have any direct stories about sloth bears, but uh, certainly if you look at the conflicts with people, uh, sloth bears are, have the highest, most frequent conflict. And that's a, a dual situation in the sense that uh, their behavior is quite aggressive, um, but they also live in a, a human-saturated environment in, in India uh, where there's a lot of people around, right? So the, the incidents of, of interaction are going to be higher. Um, but I think one of the things that you look at sloth bears is they live with one of the other largest carnivores on the planet, they live with tigers, right? And they're much smaller than tigers. And so some of that aggressive behavior is defensive posturing to uh, protect themselves and protect their young. Um, but yeah, they, yeah, they kind of have that cue to, to be a bit more aggressive as a bear species. Yeah. Have you ever studied tigers in India? I've never studied tigers. Tigers would be interesting. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're a species that, again, like leopards, like polar bears, they're magnificent, uh, they're charismatic. Uh, they attract a lot of attention, and that attention can be used in very good ways for conservation. But I myself haven't. We do have, I do have colleagues at the zoo that do work on tigers in the wild. Okay, so that leads me to my next question: Is there any other large carnivore that you are that you would just love to study one day? Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I thinking on that question. I think um, I'm more drawn towards systems than I am towards individual species and one of the things i'm drawn to and i was drawn to about polar bears is that 
I, I really find systems where animals seem to be living on, on the edge of environmental extremes to be very interesting. So if I could, I would love to you know, look at something like snow leopards that are living in, in Pakistan or Afghanistan, places like that, um, or even other leopard species um, that are living in places like Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, places where you wouldn't typically expect a cat to exist, and then you'd have to wonder how does it make a living in these environments? What does it have to do? That, that to me, is a very interesting part. So, yeah, I'd be drawn to those extreme systems, mountains, deserts, polar regions, that what kind of thing. About, what about jaguars? Uh, very neat species, yeah. Uh, very close in their ecology to leopards. And we have a very good jaguar researcher at San Diego Zoo Global. So uh, it's always interesting to see what he's doing because I kind of compare notes with him to what I'm doing for leopards. Wow. Yeah, that's, man, you just have a dream job. Do you have any last minute advice for anyone listening? We have a lot of young listeners who, yeah. I mean, you have, I can't even believe you must have beat out so many people for this job. I mean, you're traveling the world <laughs> and the San Diego Zoo yeah. is one of the most credible zoos in the whole entire world. I mean, so any advice, yeah. give us some, give us some tips. Uh, yeah, I think, um, one of the things that served me very well is to, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a, uh, a stubborn personality in a sense like I, I go after something and I continue to go after it and that's really important you can't be dissuaded too early everybody has uh, bumps in the path failures that happen and you got to just sort of take those in stride and and certainly I feel very lucky to work for San Diego Zoo Global and there are certain things that have happened that have been kind of just neat coincidences and timing um, you know when they put up the position that I applied for the title of the position was actually a large carnivore scientist with a focus on bears and that that was just just happened to be the way my CV was already pre-constructed so it just it was just coincidence you know that I, that I got that position but it also came with a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication so that would be my, my big piece of advice is, is just to stick with it. If you really believe in what you want to do, then you're just going to keep going. I mean, it, it must be the same for you in the sense that you're, you know, you're a wildlife uh, broadcaster. There's a lot of people who do that. And so you want to just, the reason you're, you're where you're at is because you just keep going. You're, you're stubborn. You keep doing it, right? Yeah. And that puts you out in that place. Yeah, so absolutely. That would be my, my I would agree. Never give up. I mean, really, the sky's the limit. I mean, you grew up in a you know small place in Canada, and look at where you are now. This is great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then my last question for you is, what can someone at home do to help these large carnivores? You know, I mean, what can someone do who's living in the middle of Wisconsin who's like, oh, how can I help polar bears? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to get involved. Um, certainly conservation is something that's done out of the generosity of people you know it, it's uh it's a profession that is dependent on uh generosity of people generosity of governments to get the work done so if you're really inspired that you you want to help then looking towards an organization that does the type of work on the ground that we do and, and helping that way is is a fantastic way in your individual life if you think about polar bears their primary threat is climate change and the thing that I always recommend for this, because climate change seems like such a massive thing. How, how can one person deal with like a global issue? Um, and my strategy for my own life has been to take one thing and do it well. And which is for me, I don't own a car and, and I, I plan not to. 
you know, and I always want to live close to where I have to work and use alternate forms of transportation so that that carbon footprint isn't part of my life, right? And so I think when it comes to polar bears and climate change, finding something that you can um, hold on to with your life to make that change, uh, it goes a long way, especially when you start to add that change up across the globe. I mean, you've been out in the field with polar bears. Is it as sad as doom and gloom as that? And I know that you've seen this video of that starving polar bear, that National Geographic, they shot that like a few years ago and it just went viral. I mean, mm-hmm. is it I mean, is it like that up there? I mean, is it that? Have you seen a lot of change from climate change yourself uh, personally? Yeah, so you, you do see change, but it, it's not that type of change. So uh, this idea that there's a lot of starving bears walking around is not the type of change that we actually see. Certainly there's some bears that that will happen to and, and have always been that way. There's always going to be bears for whatever reason that don't quite make it. And that proportion of the population is increasing somewhat. But what we really see uh, is a sort of silent change, um, which is that females that should be giving birth to cubs aren't because they're not in good enough condition to give birth to cubs. Um, and so what happens is you don't have a recruitment of new cubs in the population and the population shrinks very slowly, very steadily over time. And so you can, you can see this happening as the numbers come back and as we track these changes and relate them back to how sea ice is changing due to climate change. But it's not this stark image. You don't see a stark image. You just see a loss of, of individuals in the population. Um, so it, it's, it's silent in that sense in terms of the way the change is happening. But it is happening. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. So where do you see yourself in 10 years, Nick? <laughs> Hopefully doing this. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I certainly see this as a, as a career trajectory for me. Um, the beautiful part about this job is that there's so much variety uh, that I'm always getting something um, new and interesting to do. And I feel very attached to what I'm doing because it, it falls very closely with my own personal values. I think that uh, having wildlife around us is uh, an incredibly important thing uh, for us as humans, that it would be a very sad day to live in a world that's just dominated by us without any of the other critters that we live with right now. So the fact that I get to try to work on that every single day is uh, very important to me, and, and I just want to keep doing it at San Diego Zoo Bowl. That's great. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, thank you for having me on, Corbin. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.